Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. My guest today is the prize-winning author, Leila Slimani. Leila was the first Moroccan woman to win France's prestigious Prix Goncourt for her spine-tingling novel, Lullaby. If you haven't read it, I really recommend it. She has since written three more novels, including Watch Us Dance, which is the second in the Moroccan trilogy that's loosely based on her own incredible family history. Plus two works of non-fiction, including The Scent of Flowers at Night, about art, motherhood and daughterhood. Leila was born in Rabat in Morocco and moved to Paris at 17. And she lived there until lockdown drove her and her family out of the city, as it did so many people. And she now lives in Lisbon. Leila joined me to talk about growing up across cultures and building her own identity, how women's lives have changed across generations and how they haven't. And the mystery of how somehow, whatever you do, your life ends up exactly like your parents. His life as a child, growing up in his traditional family, this life was too small, was boring, not interesting that the real life was the life in the books. We also discussed how she worked out what sort of woman she wanted to be, how to teach your daughter not to be afraid, the power of I don't know, and why she really, really just wants a break. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. And you, how are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Really good. Are you still in this book? Yes, I am. Yes. Is that a forever move? Yes, I think so. Not forever, I don't know, but for a long time. Wow. That's quite radical. Yeah. But it's nice. The weather is beautiful. People are really nice, really polite. I love it. And my children are very happy there. What made that happen? Because I thought that Paris was a a forever for you. No, I think after COVID, I understood that um, for that my children were not that happy in Paris. And myself, I think that's also I was tired with Paris and with the little publishing uh, milieu and all this and writers and all that. I think it's it's good for a writer also to keep some distance from this crowd. <laughs> yeah, that's that it's interesting. You're the second person who said that to me in the last few days that being away from that bubble of, I don't know, groupthink maybe. Yeah, I think it's very important because it gets on your 
I don't know, it gets on your mind and it's, uh, and you see things that you don't want to see and you witness things that you don't want to see. And people are all obsessed with the same thing. It's always the same conversation and it's not very refreshing. So I think it's very good to keep some distance. Do you find it easier to be, uh, I don't know, I guess a private person? In Lisbon. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Even if now more and more people know me in Lisbon because it's a small town, because I did some events and now they know me, but people are very respectful there. Even if they recognize me, they won't come and speak with me or ask for a selfie or things like that. In Paris, I think that because of the Goupour and because of all the... Uh, the publicity around my books, people feel that they not only that they know me, but sometimes that they own me. So you are in a museum and someone takes his phone and just like this and takes a selfie and you're like, wow, what's happening? It's really weird. Wow. Without even asking. No, without asking. That's so weird, isn't it? Yeah, and the other day someone just took he took his phone and he showed me my Wikipedia page and he said, I recognized you. And I was like, yeah, great. (laughs) (laughs) So? (laughs) And you were just like out, just going about your business. Yeah, exactly. God. It's it's so weird, isn't it? I was thinking when I was reading The Scent of Flowers at night about that, that kind of conflict about being a public person, especially when you've been as successful as you and your kind of your other job as well. And the kind of... I guess that kind of, we're living in a time where we're almost not allowed to be private or quiet or personal or not have an opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And people, they, some of them, at least, they think that you are a coward if you are very private, that you have something to hide, that it's not normal if you don't want to be on social media and give your opinion all the time. But if you don't give your opinion, it is because... Um, you don't want to share it, but you have one. People are very paranoid and um, I think they don't understand the desire for intimacy or even the fact that sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you don't have an answer. Sometimes you don't have a point of view. You're just, sometimes you're just lost. Yeah, it's a bit like we're not allowed to not know. Is it so rare? Uh, you know, if you dared to answer a question with I don't know. I remember when I was a, a young writer one day, I, I met with uh, someone from the media and he told me never answer I don't know in a TV show or they will never invite you again. And I thought that it was so violent and so stupid. And I was like, but if I don't know, of course I will say I don't know. But for him, it was impossible because the point was not to say something that was intelligent or yeah, or wise, or, but just to be reinvited again. Yeah, just to say something. But I find it really refreshing. It's so rare that someone says, I don't know when they do. I always like, wow. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I want to talk a bit about, firstly, about Watcher's Dance. How has it been plowing back through your family history. I mean, we've talked about it before because we we talked at Cheltenham about the country of others, but how, how has that been for you, you know, digging up through all of your your family's business? Um, for, for Watchers Dance, it was quite, um, it was nice actually because I had, I think, a very idealized vision of the 60s because it's first because it's the time where my parents were 20 and I think like many children, it's always 
yeah, very strange to imagine your parents when they were 20 when they were young. And um, my parents were hippies. My father had big hair, big beard. They had the pantalon pas d'éléphant. And my mother also, she had very long hair. And um, when they told us about this time, this period of, of their life, they would always speak about parties, about dancing, about rock and roll and beaches and all that. So I had this very idealized vision. But then the more I grew, I grew older, the more I grew the more I wanted to really try to understand the reality of this period because um, I knew that it was not as beautiful and as easy and as um, yeah idealist as they, they, they told me. So when I began to dig into it, I discovered a lot of things, not only about my parents, but about Morocco, about the country. And um, it made me maybe understand why my parents were hippies and uh, uh, communists and all this and why my father became a banker uh, with a Mercedes. I think that I understood a lot about this generation and the fact that they contradict themselves so much and that in a way they betrayed their ideals. And I'm in the age where you begin to betray your ideals the age where you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, okay, I'm not exactly the person I thought I was going to be when I was 20 years old. So I think it was really important and very strong for me to maybe to forgive them and to understand them and to understand also that in a way I was doing the same mistakes. Who did you, when you were 20 years old, who did you think you were going to be when you were 40? I think I knew I was going to be a writer. I probably at that time, I thought that I was going to be a freer woman, that I was going to be very free, that I would not have children, that I will not be married, that I will not care about money or success or comfort or things like that, that I would be always sort of rebel, that I would be very rebellious against all kinds of power or kind of government. But the truth is that I'm, very, I'm much more bourgeois than what I imagined when I was 20 years old. I actually, when I was 20 years old, I wanted to be everything uh, different from my parents. I was looking at them and I was like, I want everything but that. <laughs> and actually, I looked very much like them. I mean, how was it com- drawing, comparing, say, your grandmother's, which was very different? to your mother's and and then your own, which is your own is more or less the subject of the third book, isn't it? You know, it's, um, it's funny, it's weird because it was like a movie in my head. My grandmother told me a lot of stories about her childhood, about the moment when she met my grandfather, about the war. And so in my head, when I was a child, it's like it's, I made my own movie with the costumes, with the color, with a certain atmosphere. And when I began to write The Country of Others, I just yeah described this movie that was in my head. And for my parents, it's the same. I had also different scenes, the, the beaches, the, the lights at the end of the, of the summer, the hippie community in Isawira. So I have this. I had this movie in in my head, coming from the photographs uh, I had of, of my parents, coming from the stories, coming from the little movies they made with with their friends. So, yeah, I think it's all about images I have in my in my head. Did you find that 
but when you were looking kind of across the generations, that women's lives hadn't changed as much as you thought you would have thought they had? No, actually it changed, um, but very, but sometimes very superficially. I mean, my grand, the, the big difference between the generation of my mother and my grandmother is the fact that my mother studied and my mother became a doctor. So she was not financially dependent on her husband. But so my grandmother had a very ambiguous relationship to this because at the same time, I think she was very proud of my mother, very proud to have a daughter who was a doctor. But in a way, she was also a little bit jealous. And sometimes I could feel that she was looking at my mother and asking herself, why, why is she lucky enough to have this and why uh, didn't I? So I think, yeah, she was a little bit jealous. And then for my mother, she had everything. She had the job, she had the children, she had the husband, but she never had the right to complain. I remember that my father, he would do nothing at home, absolutely nothing. He would go to work, come back and drink a beer, watch TV, read the newspaper and never, never get involved in anything, school or food or anything. So my mother, she would do everything. And sometimes when I was a teenager, I was very angry against her, telling her, you should complain, you should ask dad to do things. And she would always say, no, I won't complain because if I complain, your father is going to tell me you wanted to work. So now you work, accept the rest. So for my mother, it was about doing everything and never complaining. And for my generation, maybe uh, the evolution is that sometimes, and, and I really sometimes, we give ourselves the right to complain and to say, you know, it's too much. I need you to help me. I need you to, yeah, to, to assume certain things at home and all this. So it's evolving, but very slowly. And I think also that what is maybe the most difficult is not always done. It's not always about the law. It's not always about the society. It's not always about the rights that you have or that you don't have. It's also about yourself and the freedom you give to yourself and the kind of woman you decide to be. My aunt, who inspired the character of Selma, she decided to be free. She decided not to marry. She decided to be the woman she wanted to be. Of course, she paid the price for this and price was quite big, quite heavy, but she decided to be this kind of, of woman. So it's also about, yeah, what about being brave and about yeah, assuming the price of, of freedom because freedom is never free. You always have to pay the price for being free when you are a woman. Yeah. It's about choosing which, which thing you will have and which thing you will forego. Exactly. In, in a way, it's choosing what, what kind of alienation you're going to, to suffer from. You know you're going to be alienated because total freedom is probably impossible. But some women, and it's the case of my mother and of many characters in the book, choose to be a wife, a mother, uh, a good daughter, to build a house and to take care of people around them. I think that's the, the education that the majority of, of, of us received. And it takes a lot of time, a lot of time to understand that sometimes the choice you make are not really choices. Uh, it's not things that you choose. It's things that people choose for you. 
And um, it's really disturbing when you discover that, when you understand that. And um, I think that between women, from a generation of women to another, um, there are, we transmit a lot of lies also, a lot of fantasies, and we don't really tell the truth. And I hope that for the next generation, we will be brave enough to tell the truth, to tell that being a mother is beautiful, but very difficult also. That getting married, why not? But that you're not forced to and that you can be very happy also with. And so, yeah, I think that now that I'm 42 years old, I understand that a lot of things that I've done in my life, I've done then because I thought that it was the right thing to do because people told me that I was supposed to do that as as a woman but I didn't really choose even if I've always thought that I was really free in the scent of flowers at night I don't want to kind of keep saying that all because it's such a long title but I noticed where you were talking about you know that you were brought up to be a polite child and you taught to rein yourself in and that's kind of so many girls in particular are brought up that way and it's not really consistent with then striking out on your on your own and doing things your own way is it yeah absolutely and you know you I was raised also to be afraid I was afraid of a lot of things as a little girl I should be afraid of the ogre in the forest I should be afraid of the monster of the man who could rape me of uh, being pregnant uh, of uh, falling in love of so many danger when you are a uh, uh, a little girl, they, you know, people very often, they wait from a boy to be brave. A boy is supposed to be brave. He's supposed not to be afraid. He's supposed to go out and conquer the world and kill the monster. But the little girl, she's going to be killed by the monster or eaten or uh, kidnapped. And um, I regret that. I regret that very much. I regret to have wasted so many years being afraid uh, because now I know that I'm as brave as a man and that, yes, there are monsters, but I can kill the monster as well as a man can do. So, yeah, I regret that very much. And I will try very hard not to transmit that to my daughter or the idea that she, that, that she should be more afraid than her brother. No, of course, you, you don't have to be afraid. But I was afraid for so long, so long. Were you taught that by your parents by your grandparents where did that come from you know there's uh, there's an expression in arabic that said happy the mother who children are uh, coward and there's this idea that a mother should always tell all the danger to a child so he is if he's afraid he's not going to endanger he himself he's not going to go to go out i think it has to do with the fact that we lived in a very patriarchal society morocco in the 80s and also in a dictatorship in in a place where we were not safe and everything was possible and my mother was probably always afraid that we were going to go out and be what we heard at home, repeat what my father said or her, and that maybe someone would listen and that they would come to the house saying, why do you criticize the king and why do you say this or that? So it was a very paranoid atmosphere. We were always afraid of 
people listening that yeah walls have ears and my mother i remember even at home in the in the house in the living room she would whisper because she was always afraid that someone was listening to her so i think it has to do with that probably and everyone would come at, at, at the house say oh poor for you, my my father, because he only had girls, and I was so sad when I I was always hearing that, and I felt, oh my God, my father is so disappointed to have only girls, and and I remember it now, and I think that people were so stupid to tell this all the time. So depressing, isn't it? I remember one time when I interviewed you. I can't remember which time it was, talking to you about bravery and saying how brave you were because you were very brave on the page. And you, I remember, I think it was at the South Bank Centre and you said, no, I'm not, I'm not brave. I'm very fearful. Do you feel, has that changed now? Mm, Not really. I think I'm fearful, but the page is a very different space. It's, it's out of the world, out of reality for me. Uh, today I was doing an interview and the interviewer asked me if sometimes I was afraid of the reaction of the public when I was writing something. And I was very surprised. And I told him, I never think of the public when I write. I write like if I was dead, like if no one would ever uh, read my my writing. And um so there, this is a very, very particular place. I'm not really brave because I'm completely alone and I don't think about the reaction or the, yeah, what it's going to provoke in the, in the real world. But that's a place where I never censor myself. I say whatever I want to say and um, I'm not afraid of judgment. I'm not afraid of um, people being shocked or people thinking I'm wrong. I don't care about that. But in real life, yes, I do. I've been th- I was thinking about your experience of growing up where it, well, your grandmother was Alsatian, but you were growing up in Morocco and, you know, in a culture where your parents didn't really support the, uh, the, the, the monarchy, the dictatorship you were growing up under and with, with your uncle. And the fact that your parents absolutely loved American films, you know, and Catherine Hepburn. I've just been thinking about the conflict. Not because I'm writing about it right now, because I'm writing The Dark Path. So I'm trying to find a way to express that and to explain that to my readers, how weird it was because we were raised in Morocco. I look very Moroccan. I have a very Moroccan first name. Uh, but at the same time, we never or very not very often speak Arabic. We would speak French with my parents and we would watch a lot of movies, as you said, American movies, Hollywood uh, from the 50s, so Sid Charis, Katharine Hepburn, Lauren Bacall. So for me, uh, it was really difficult to knew who I was and who were my parents when I would, and I knew nothing about my father, about the childhood of my father, about his family. My father was very, very mysterious about that. So yeah, I didn't have a real identity. I didn't have roots. I didn't have a place that I could say it's my place. And I have, you know, we, we didn't have a religion. We didn't have rituals. We wouldn't celebrate anything except Christmas because my grandmother loved Christmas very much. 
So, yeah, it was weird growing up like this, not really knowing where you belong. And then when I arrived in Europe and I felt very European and also I felt American and I felt a lot of things, but seeing in the eyes of French people that for them I was just an Arab and um, that's the only thing that I was. And it was really weird for me and it took me many years to understand how they were seeing me because for me I was not that. Very often you spend a lot of your, one spends a lot of one's teenage years thinking about what will happen when you can get away and you can find your people and and then you get there and you just find a different sort of difference, another a different reason to not belong. Yeah, absolutely. Um, even if for me, going to Europe, going to Paris was also wonderful because as a young woman, it was freedom. It was sexual freedom. It was um, another kind of relationship with boys. It was being able to walk in the on the streets at night holding the hand of someone without fearing the cops or without fearing the judgment of, of people. So it was I found I, I can't say that I found my people, but I found a place. And for me, Paris also, uh, when I, when I arrived in Paris at 17 years old, I, I knew nothing about Paris except what I've read in books. So for me, Paris was just a city of literature. I, I remember that I was walking from one street to another thinking, oh, this street is in Maupassant. Oh, this street is in Oh, this street is in this novel of Zola. So at the same time, it was very yeah, strange and very, yeah, I had to learn a lot of things. And at the same time, it was familiar through books. And it happened to me a lot of times, this sensation with London, with St. Petersburg, the first time I went to, to Russia, because I read so many books about those cities that for me, it's like I've been there. Like New York, when you watch a lot of movies about New York, the first time you arrive there, it's at the same time, it's very different and it's very familiar. Did the 20 years you spent in Paris, I mean, how did it shape your you as a as a woman as a person oh it made me tough i think and it made me yeah uh, very com- combative because when you arrive there you know paris is so beautiful so big so fancy so glamorous you want to be in you want to be part of this but you don't know how you know how to enter how to belong to this place and uh, People look at you, and um, it's very French to think like that. But they they think that you have to assimilate to, to them. You have to integrate to them. You have to forget about your past. You have to leave some things behind and become a Parisian. And it's tough. It's a, it's very challenging. And um, while I was doing it, I. I was very happy to do it because I wanted to be there. I remember that uh, when I arrived in Paris, uh, I was on the Boulevard Saint-Germain next to the Café de Flore, and I saw a woman sitting on a terrace. It was the afternoon, and she was drinking a glass of wine, reading a book, and smoking a cigarette. Wow, I looked at her. And I told myself, you know, if you're able to do this, to sit on this terrace the whole afternoon, 
just smoking and drinking and watching at people, you you will do something with your life. I don't know why I told myself, but I did it. I sat and I said, and, and I stayed here for the whole afternoon, not worrying about people looking at me. I didn't care. And um, so it was great. But after 15 years or 20 years, I think also that I saw all the darkness behind this and all the violence and the cruelty that comes with the fact to belong or to be in or to integrate and to assimilate. Now I understand that I lost also some things in the, in the journey and that uh, you accept to do things that are maybe not very good and you corrupt yourself a little bit. So yeah, it was, it was good, but Paris is also, it's beautiful, it's glamorous, but it can also be very toxic. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I think as well there's something about assimilation, isn't there? That is actually about making yourself invisible. Exactly. And erasing yourself. It's like you're trying to erase everything that makes you different, everything that is that makes you a singularity. You just try to be like the others. And at the end, sometimes you feel you lost yourself. You lost the sense of your own identity. And so, yeah, you know, it was the whole philosophy even of French colonization. It was this idea that... Uh, people in the colonized country, they should assimilate to French culture. And uh, I think that sometimes I'm a little bit angry against France because of that, because I think it's always on one side and never the other. I mean, I speak French. I know about French literature. I know a lot of things about French history, French society. And um, when I come to France and I speak with people and ask them about Morocco, they know nothing. And they don't care about not knowing it. But for us people or young people, young generation from Africa, when we are at school, we are raised with the idea that we should know a lot about the West. We should read English book and French book and American books and all this. And we, we need to know about that and be able to adapt. And actually, we are much more cosmopolitan and much more open-minded than Europeans right now, I think. And um, it's very sad to see how Europe shut itself and uh, how, yeah, I think I'm very disappointed because when I think about when I arrived in Europe 20 years ago, 
and never, never imagined that it could be like it is right now with the extreme right in Italy, right in the French parliament, with the Brexit, with all this. I was maybe too naive, but I think it's very sad. I think, I don't know, this could be, I could be completely wrong, but I, I think that I used to have this idea that history was linear and that you moved forward. And I think once you get old, <laughs> older, you start, yeah, you start to see that it's cyclical exactly. and whether it's feminism or, or racism. Yeah. And that's why we always, always need to stay vigilant. And that's also something that I learned with time and because before for me, you know, it was done. It was we were, we were going to progress, and um, it was always going to be better. And uh, um, I was not maybe vigilant enough when when it comes to uh, sexual rights or feminism or you know, I, I like everyone. When Trump was elected, I was like, it's not possible. But yes, of course, it's possible. Why wouldn't it be? Yeah, and I think, and you know, and what's happened with abortion rights in America, and things that you know, even four or five years ago, if someone had said to me Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned, I just wouldn't have believed it was possible. Yeah, so yeah, and I think that's also what is interesting when you write a trilogy because you understand that. Uh, Everything is possible. Everything can happen. And nothing is forever. Um, uh, something that you you win, something, there's a victory, but then you can lose again. And you have always, always, always to stay vigilant and to continue to fight for the things you, you believe in. And uh, yeah, that's also what makes it very interesting for me to write about history, is to have a different vision of, of time. It's much more profound now. Do you think that writing the trilogy and kind of looking back over your family history and your mother and grandmother's upbringing and your own upbringing, has, how has that affected your, your own parenting? I mean, particularly of your daughter, but also your son. Honestly, it's very disturbing, very disturbing because, um, in some in some way, uh, I discovered very beautiful things about some characters of my family, especially my grandmother. I think that when I wrote about her, I understood how brave she was and how subversive, how provocative she was. And I think that when she was alive, I was not aware of that. And um, so that's something that I discovered. But I also discovered big secrets. I discovered a lot of violence. I understood also some things about my, my family, about my past, about my father that are very, yeah, very difficult. And I always uh, say, I always brag about the fact that I can keep some distance with my subject, that it's not a problem that I could write about anything with, without being disturbed. But I think that it's not true. I think that now after two volumes and now writing the third one, I really feel that it's disturbing me uh, a lot. And um, in terms also of uh, what we were saying before of identity, because I understood something is that there is a problem of transmission in my family. Uh, many individuals in my family were totally in, unable to transmit their own culture or their own values to their children. My father was 
unable to transmit his language, his culture, his family history. Uh, and it was the same for my grandfather. So, yeah, I think that I understood that there was a problem of transmission. And there is this farm. This farm still exists and no one uh, inherited from this farm because no one wants it. And um Now it makes me very sad to think about this, to think about all the work my father, my grandfather has done for this farm. And so, yeah, we have a problem of transmission in this family. What is it about your, because that sounds like that's on both sides. What is it about your dad particularly that he struggled to tell you? You know, my, my, my grandfather, my grandparents were dead when I was born, so I never met them. And my father was the only one in the family to go to the colonial school because at that time in the 50s, only one child in a Moroccan family could go to colonial school. So it was my father and my father. So he, he learned French at school. And I think that he became a stranger in his own family. And um, my grandmother and uh, I think also his brother considered him very arrogant and very different. And they resent him for, you know, succeeding uh, in a way and becoming a bourgeois and having a very different life, marrying a woman who was French, my mother, and uh, raising his daughter, my sisters and I, in a very modern way. So my father, he couldn't transmit his, you know, his traditional culture to us because it was lost even for him. So I, my father was an island. He was an island lost in a big ocean. He was completely alone, alone with us because he was only with women. And he always felt that we couldn't understand him, that he was alone, that no one was giving him the importance he thought he he had and he was alone also with his own family so yeah I can't really tell you who he was because he was a mystery to me and each time I was asking him a question about his childhood he would take a book from the, uh, the shelf and he would give me the book and he would say that's my story even if it was a novel from Dostoevsky or Jack London and he would say it's my story read this you will find the answer So everything was always about literature, about books. It was impossible to talk uh, always about books. And now I feel myself also trapped in books. I'm trapped in books. I'm reading all the time. I'm writing all the time. And I'm like, actually, I'm in the same prison as my father. I'm in the prison of books. That's fascinating because when he was a child, when he was growing up, and I'm just like guessing... Books were kind of his salvation in a way. Yeah, I think so. And I think that like for me, he thought that life was to his life as a child uh, growing up in his traditional family. This life was too small, was boring, not interesting that the real life was the life in the books. And that one day he will have the life that is in the books, the big feelings, the big passion, the big adventures. And I think that it was the same for me. But the problem is that books are always bigger than life. And um, in a way, if you are completely obsessed with books, at one point you always escape from life because life is never enough. You will always want more passion and more adventure and more of, of everything. So at the same time, I think that I love literature and I love books so much. There are the 
the heart of my life. But I also know that books put you in a certain distance from life. It isolates you. That when you read the book, you are alone and people won't talk to you. You know, when you are in a restaurant, if you want people to leave you alone, the best way is to open a book and you feel safe with a book. You feel that no one is going to bother you and it's a wall. That's why I use this metaphor of a wall or of a prison because, yes, it can can learn a lot of things and open yourself to the world through books, but it can also isolate you very much. And for me, I think it was the case. It really struck me that you so often, in your fiction, certainly you write, and in fact, in your first nonfiction, you write about women, you tell women's stories and about their role in society. But it seemed that at the heart of your memoir lies your father and your your relationship with him and what the terribly sad thing that happened to him. Could you talk about that a little Yes, my father, when I was a child, my father was a a banker and he was a politician and he was a very successful man, a very, he had a lot of power. He was quite arrogant also. And one day when I was 13 years old, 12 years old, he came back home and never left because he lost his job. Um, The king decided that he would not be um, the director of the the bank anymore. And he stayed at home for like 10 years. And my parents never explained to us why. It was a different time, different generation. You know, today you explain everything to children, you take them in the bedroom and you have a conversation. But at that time they said nothing. So I just watched my father for like 10 years, sitting in the couch, drinking a lot and reading a lot. And uh, being very, very, very sad and very bored and very lonely because everyone abandoned us when he lost his power and his his position. And then when he was um, 60 years old, I was 20, he got arrested. Um, And it was like from one day to another, he got arrested and he went to prison. And then he got very sick. And when he went out of prison, he, he died. And he was found innocent like six years after. So all this was like nothing. It was just, uh, yeah, he was used by other people to, to pay for, for them. So, yeah, it was really unfair. It made me very angry. I think that this anger is probably one of my motivation for writing because when I began to write, I wanted to write for revenge to clear my name, to clear his name and to, yeah, to show people that um, I was and uh, impossible to destroy, that I, nothing could destroy me. Um, but now that I think about it, uh, when I think about my father and I think about my childhood, it's not so much anger that I feel, but sadness, but melancholy. I think that when you get older, you understand that anger is the name for something else. It's always hiding something else. And so anger helped me survive. But now I think that when I will write about him, it would not be so much about anger, but about sadness and about frustration that we never had the conversation about why are you here? What happened? How, what do you feel? Um, He was so proud. He was so afraid that we were going to judge him or to, that he was going to look weak, that he never told us. And um, yeah, I think it's a shame. So yeah, I'm very, very 
nostalgic of the conversation we could have had. And you, in the book, you described him as an obstacle. And I think you said something like, my destiny required his death. Yes, I would say for two reasons. I think that people who, like me, lived for a very long time with someone who suffers a lot, physically or emotionally, psychologically. It's very sad to say that, but at the same time, when they die, it's a relief. You know, my father, he was suffering so much. He hated life. At the end, he really hated life. So when he died, I was like, I I mean, in a way, it's better for him. It's better for us because it was just suffering. And um, I think that when you suffer psychologically, it's sometimes as hard as suffering. uh, I mean, physically, it's terrible mental mental, uh, suffering. And also because... I come from a society and from an education where the, I think the eyes of your father on you, the judgment of the man, of the father on yourself is very, very strong and inhibits, I don't know how to say it in English, but yeah, it inhibits you a lot. So when he died, at the same time, I was very sad, but I understood that it was a chance that I could emancipate myself from this, from his look on me, from his judgment. And um, I wanted, in a way, to say, I'm going to do the best with your death. I'm going to use it to do something for me. Um, I, I, I was, yeah, I think that I was like 22 years old and I wanted to live. I wanted to live so much. You know, when we were in this house with my father for 10 years in this very heavy atmosphere, not speaking about the thing that we all wanted to speak about, but keeping the silence and all this. When he died, it was like a relief and I just wanted to live so much. And I know it can seem very cruel or very selfish, but I think that many people experience that, the fact that the death of someone can be at the same time something really painful and a relief. And has it, how did his death, if at all, change your relationship with your mum? It completely changed my relationship with my mum because I was very unfair with her and very cruel before because I was obsessed with my father. I wanted to be the son of my father. I wanted to console him or to... Yeah, from having only girls. And so I always saw that my mother was not kind enough to my father. She was not tender enough with him, poor thing. But then I understood something is that my mother has always been the man of the family. She has always done everything. And uh, she was the one taking care of uh, of school, of my homework, of the ballet dance, of the of food, of my friends, of everything, of, of money and of everything. So yeah, it changed completely my relationship with her. She was like, um, yeah, second role says second character, and then she became the main main character of, of the family, what she has always been. But the shadow of my father was very heavy on all of us, I think. What do you think now? I mean, the last 15, 20, 20 years of your life have been crazy, haven't they? One way and another with your family, but also all your career. What do you, what do you kind of hope for the next 
20 a break <laughs> no uh, you know i hope to be able to give myself a break i think that many women of my of my age who have the same situation as as me i mean like young children uh, a job traveling a lot of things to do taking care also of my mothers of the, the older parents and all this sometimes you just want to put things on pause. You just want to have some time for you to think about you and to think about what you really want, what you really like. And I feel like a hamster, you know, and it never stops, it never stops. And sometimes, yeah, I feel I don't have enough control on my life. Um, so it's beautiful, it's wonderful. And um, uh, I have it all, like they say. But, you know, I think that... For a very long time, the fight, the masculine fight was to conquer and to accumulate and to have many things. And I think that maybe the feminine fight is to lose things, to have less, to be able to to accept the idea of not doing, not involving, letting things go. And um, that's why I love the books of, of Deborah Levy. I think that she writes about that, about the idea that sometimes for women, losing is actually winning. And that, yeah, we don't want to accumulate. Sometimes we just want to be, I feel very heavy and I want to be lighter, you know. I do know. And I think I think about that a lot because I think that when a woman says enough, steps back from a big job or, or whatever, however that might manifest... Uh, our society, our media often portrays that as weakness, you know, and that's like you say, that's the kind of masculine way of looking at it. And may, in fact, maybe quitting at the right point or stepping back or recalibrating is strength. Yeah. And it's also about what we were saying before, uh, choosing to be private at one moment, choosing not to be on the spotlights for uh, among people who say, why it's so weird. Why everyone would, would want that. Everyone would want to be. No, I think that at one point, maybe you just want to, to quit things and to go away, to disappear. So yeah, I really want to disappear. So. Yeah, yeah. There's um, in in the memoir you talk about um, a, a writer you knew who said he was never happier than when he broke his leg, and he couldn't be dis- you know his leg was in plaster and so he couldn't be disturbed. And it really reminded me of when I was writing the shift. So many women said to me, "I know this is a bad thing to say, but I really long to be like." ill, like properly ill, but not like life-threateningly ill, but so ill that nobody can bother me. Like maybe in hospital for like a few weeks. That's what I was telling you. I think that we are so many, so many women to just want a break. Give me a break. I, I feel that everyone wants something from me. You know, I come home, mom, mom, Lena, and it's my publisher, it's my husband, it's my children, it's my... And I feel that everyone wants something from me. And um, sometimes I just want yeah, to disappear, to go somewhere very far where no one can reach me. Any chance of that anytime soon? Yeah, I hope so. I'm going to New York in, in two weeks for one month. And I think I will cut my phone, maybe not answer for a few days. It will be great. Is that family free? Yes, absolutely. Oh, your face lit <laughs> up. Then, really. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a very bad mother, I know, but uh, anyway. 
Nah. <laughs> right, I'm going to ask you the questions I always ask at the end. What is your emotional age? 125 years, I think. <laughs> Why is that? Oh, I think I'm a very old soul. I've always felt that and people who know me very well always tell me that, that I'm an old soul. So I think it's my emotional age. Uh, give us a book recommendation. You know, I've been reading a lot of poetry um, lately and I think that we don't read enough poetry and I've, I'm reading the Requiem by Anna Akhmatova. She's a wonderful, wonderful Ukrainian writer and um, it's very interesting to read it right now and this the particular situation about the violence in Russia and all this. It's really beautiful, very moving. Uh, what advice would you give younger women? Not to be afraid to be disliked, not to be afraid that people won't like you. It's not a problem not to be liked all the time. It's so interesting that you said earlier that you'd been asked about that earlier by a journalist. Were you afraid about what people would think? That that they would think that? You know, I think they would never ask that to Jonathan Franzen or a very, you know, very masculine writer because a masculine writer that is not supposed to be afraid. But, uh, yeah, maybe your biceps aren't yeah, big enough exactly. or something. I don't know. <laughs> problem of biceps, always. <laughs> <laughs> um, who is um, an older woman who has inspired you? Isabelle Huppert, the French actress. Um, I think she's uh, she's extraordinary as an actress, uh, as a as a woman also, and I admire her very much. I admire her for her talent. I admire her for her, her strength. Um, yeah, she's um, she's really a, a figure for, for me, an important figure for me. What's your superpower? Uh, Sometimes to be invisible because I have. Yeah. possibility through books and through literature to become invisible. Uh, last one, how many fucks do you give? Uh, a lot. I give, uh, I give a lot, but um, alone in my, in my bedroom. When I'm alone in my bedroom or in my office, not in front of me. Thank you so much, Leila. It's lovely thank to see you, you again. Thank you, Sam. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like the episodes featuring Elif Shafak and Isabel Allende. You'll find a link to them in the show notes. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters podcast extras, and more. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 